Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. All right, so Acts today, Acts. Uh, today I was uh, supposed to, uh, I was supposed to do a Bible study on Acts, right? Um, and I love doing the Bible studies. I love the history and the places and the maps and all the things. This is my, it's my wheelhouse for me. Love it. But uh, Thursday this week, just a couple days ago, I felt convicted that actually the main theme of Acts is one of the present weaknesses of our church. It hasn't always been a weakness. It's not a gaping weakness. It doesn't always have to stay a weakness. It's just something that I haven't seen a lot from us over the last couple years, and it bothers me. What are the weaknesses of Northeast Christian Church? Bet you don't ask yourself that question that much, do you? But it's the kind of stuff that keeps pastors like me up at night. Where's God calling us? How is the Holy Spirit seeking to sanctify this family? I actually believe that it runs against the grains of Scripture to be hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word, right? I believe it's the essence of hypocrisy to indulge your mind without actually acting on it with your body and with your life. So I just felt the spirit nudge this week. Tyler, who cares about how much your church knows about the history of Acts if you're not committed today? Like if we don't live to, leave today committed to what it's actually about. So I want to call a little bit of an audible today. This will still be on Acts, but it won't be as much of a Bible study as it will be a, a family talk. We have these family talks around here sometimes, don't we? A few times a year, I just feel compelled, like, fam, let's talk. If you're new, let me tell you the rules of a family talk, okay? Rule number one, this isn't for you. Like, I, I'm glad that you're here and you're welcome to listen in, but at no point when I say offensive things should you feel offended, okay? Uh, you get a pass, just sort of hang out. You get to know and feel what our church is about. Second, when we have our family talks, sometimes I get excited and speak very directly. It's because we fam here, all right? We're brothers and sisters. When you fight with your brothers and sisters, you're on the same page, right? Like you got, you got years of relationship that have built up to that moment where you can just talk frank. You laugh together, you know, you cry together, you kind of have it out together, right? And nobody else is allowed to talk to your brothers and sisters like you talk to your brothers and sisters, but you talk to them in a different way. So just know, like at any point, if you feel offended for them, don't. This is just how, this is how we do it. And, um, and then uh, last but certainly not least, I, I would say rule number three of the family talk is for the, the people of the family. Uh, open your hearts today. Just be open to what the Spirit might have to say to you uh, because, because I truly believe that he wants to do something special in our church. And he just wants to keep growing us. That's what, that's what God, that's what Jesus, he just wants to keep following us, keep growing us or if, uh, wants us to keep following him and keep growing us day in, day in and day out. So I pray you will just receive this with, a, with an open heart. In fact, I do pray that right now, God, for the family here at the Northeast Christian Church. Yeah, I'm sinner number one. Uh, we all fall so short of the glory of God. We're so thankful for the grace that we have been given through 
the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and I just ask right now, Lord, that, uh, that this, you know, fallen and sinful people will hear their fallen and sinful pastor just kind of begging them towards where you want us all to go, that we would receive it with open hearts and, and it would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so can you remember, can you remember when someone you admired entrusted you with like a really, really important task? Can you remember time? Fourth quarter, you know, 20 seconds left in the game, tied up, and your coach and your teammates say, we're drawn up to play for you. Big moment, right? Or it's, it's the day before the big pitch, Right. And your boss and the folks on your work squad look and say, we want you to lead the presentation tomorrow. You're 16 years old. You just got your driver's license and your dad looks at you and he says, I want you to go pick up the pizza. <laughs> oh, you, yeah, but you remember the first time you got behind the wheel, right? Or how about this one? You're at the hospital. It's your first child. And... Uh, and the nurse who's been like walking you through everything over the last couple days by the bedside, holding your hand, looks at you and says, it's time for you to go. And I'm not coming with you, but the baby is. <laughs> and you're like, where's the instruction manual? Is there one? I remember uh, in 2013, Easter that year, that was the first uh, time Bob ever asked me, Bob Cherry, my predecessor as the lead pastor here. Uh, he, it's the first time he ever asked me to preach Easter. Like in the preaching world too, like Easter's like Super Bowl Sunday. It's the big Sunday. And I was just thrilled that, that he was affording me that opportunity. Who was at this church in 2013, by the way? Just a show of hands. Okay, a lot of long timers. Who can remember my Easter sermon? <laughs> what was it on? The resurrection. Okay, whatever. Uh, I couldn't remember the Easter sermon. I had to look it up this week. I was like on my computer, like, did I keep it? I, maybe I didn't. Um, by the way, this is why Bob never asked me to preach Easter again until he retired. But uh, it was, it's, it's good, man. I, I really want you to consider this today. Think about it. What's the most important task or responsibility you've been entrusted with, like ever? And how did that make you feel? Anxious, nervous, motivated, focused, determined, honored? I bet that first time your dad told you to go pick up the pizza, you walked out the house spinning those keys, you know, but you had your hands on 10 and 2. I know that first Easter sermon, I put in three times the effort for that Sunday sermon that I would on a normal weekend. I wanted it to be just right. I bet when you brought that first kid home, you had everything prepared. Again, first kid. Let's not talk about the third kid, but the first one. You, I mean... You had the best car seat in the car. The nursery was done. You had that little warmer for the baby wipes. It's a waste of money. Uh, you had uh, the, the camera that can tell you the baby's heart rate and do like an EKG and tell you it's Enneagram. Like you just, it's amazing. Uh, you re and you remember the first night when the baby slept through and you were like, dear God, you waited through the night praying for that child. Weighty responsibility. My, my point is this, that's normal. Big responsibility brings with it big emotions and big expectations. And when we give our best to something big, it's gratifying. Now I say all that because I believe this is the moment that we are living in right now, church. This is the moment. The one we admire most, 
has entrusted us with the task of this age. The risen Jesus has said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, power, and you will be my, what? My witnesses. Telling people about me where? Be everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. For those of you who are looking at a little little bit of Bible study here on Acts, I, I believe it's actually this verse right here that serves as the outline for the rest of the book. Bearing witness is the main theme and the geographical touch points here are how the book flows. A quick map for you here. Uh, The church began and Acts begins uh, in Jerusalem. You can see where it's located here on the Mediterranean Rim. There's like a zoom in up here at the top uh, where you can see where Jerusalem is. So there's Jerusalem. Where's Judea? Judea is like the surrounding area around it. It's where many Jewish people lived. Why? Because it was around Jerusalem and Jerusalem was where the temple was. Uh, Samaria is this space up here to the north of Judea where their rivaled, hated neighbors live. Like the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. They hated each other. And then, of course, the ends of the earth is, well, the ends of the earth. This is how Acts flows. They take the gospel, they bear witness, Acts 1 through 7 in Jerusalem, then in Acts 8 through 12 to Judea and Samaria, and then in Acts 13 through 28 to the ends of the earth. They take it first to their neighbors, Jerusalem, then to their culture, Judea, then to their enemies, the Samaritans, and then to everyone else, the ends of the earth. You see how this flows? Read the book for yourself. And, uh, and you'll see this is just the direction of it, bearing witness out. Now, back to our diagram from last week. Uh, this diagram is one I snapshotted from a textbook that I read um, during my sabbatical, great book. It kind of shows the, uh, the flow of human history, if you will, according to God. It's what biblical scholars would call a chiastic structure because it... Oops, it mirrors, how did I do that? Check it out. Because it mirrors, it mirrors itself. It begins with the creation and it ends with a new creation. Then there is a judgment and then there will be a final judgment. And then sandwiched here around Jesus Christ are God's chosen people, the chosen people of Israel and his new people, the church. Now, quick question for you. Where do we fall on this timeline right now? Where are we? Not a trick question. We are here in what would be called the age of the church, right? And the age of the church began right here, the book of Acts. So you got to realize, uh, there was a time when the church did not exist. There was no church. And then there was a historical moment when it did because the Holy Spirit decided to give birth to it. Acts chapter 2. And according to Jesus, the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. And we are the church. And until he comes back, despite our failures and flaws, Jesus has entrusted us with the role of preparing both the earth and its people for final judgment and new creation. And I cannot overstate the importance of this. I can't. I want you to pretend uh, 
for me, if you will, that this timeline represents 100 billion years, 100 billion years. Okay, so there's like what, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. Okay. There we go. Um, that, that last 10, 10 billion, you know, it always takes longer than you, feels longer than you think. Okay, so, and let's just pretend like it began here uh, with, with the earth. How about we draw on earth? Let's do it. See how we're doing here. Okay, okay, Mr. Ottaway, my music and art teacher in elementary school, he'd be proud. Now, according to the most recent estimates of science, the earth is what, about 4.5 billion years old, plus or minus 50 million years. So let's just say if science is right there, then we fall about right here on the 100 billion year timeline. That's us. Now, according to scripture, scripture teaches that uh, death, the end of your life is not actually the end of your life. Your life doesn't end on this dot, right? In some way, shape, or form, you will experience the rest of this. You know that, right? This is the perspective of the Bible. And I know that in the grand scheme of eternity, your little dot here, your 70, 80 years, whatever you get, it's not that big. But in the grand scheme of eternity, it is really a big deal. It's incredibly important because According to the biblical worldview, the way that we utilize this little life that we have right here will actually determine the way we experience the rest of this and also the way that some others may experience the rest of this. That's a big deal. Now, one of the greatest challenges of life, though, I have found at least, uh, is to live our small lives in light of the big picture. Isn't it so easy to lose sight of the big picture, isn't it? And just over inflate the sense of importance of the here and the now. Do you know why? You know why it's so easy to feel like our life is so big and such a big deal? It's because our lives feel that way. Our lives feel big, they feel significant. They feel like they're, they're for a purpose and we should be accomplishing something with them, right? And, and I believe that's, that's been planted in our hearts by God. But the problem is, is rather than looking and keeping our eyes fixed on the big picture and using our little big lives to, to contribute to the big picture, this is what we do. Huge point today. We lower the stakes of the eternal. And we raise the stakes of the here and now. Politics, sex, money, work, pleasure, causes, culture, whatever it may be. We elevate those things to identity-defining, purpose-giving, little g-gods and lose sight of the big picture. See, what happens is, is when we forget that we are living in the age of the church, right? whose mantra is, according to our Savior, bear witness, we start to believe, as our culture tells us, that we're living in the age of me, overinflate the sense of our own self-importance. You know what the age of me's mantra is, right? Any guesses? YOLO. 
YOLO. You only live once. Better take advantage now of it now. And that's so short-sighted. Honestly, it's me-centric thinking. And our culture encourages it. Our culture uniquely. The culture that you are, are growing, that you're raising your kids in right now, it uniquely encourages this, this sort of egocentric thinking. You see, you know what the gurus and the influencers of our time are preaching? They're preaching that life is actually about self-discovery. You hear it underneath everything. You want to be happy? You want to find meaning? Look within. Be the authentic you. That's the key. The internal logic here is, uh, is this. Truth doesn't come from the outside in. It flows from the inside out. Meaning isn't outside of us, rather it's inside of us. Purpose isn't given like, I don't know, from some sort of transcendent being that decides it for us, rather it's chosen by every one of us. And this mindset, I'm telling you, it creates an incredible amount of friction with Orthodox Christianity because we're not an inside-out faith. You understand that, right? We're an outside-inside-out faith. We've always said that our identity is found in Christ. Our purpose is found in the will and way of Christ. And that meaning comes from when we pursue those purposes, right? Basically, we submit to an external authority. He transforms us on the inside, and then we take that back out to transform the world. Or in other words, authenticity is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not bad, but it's not necessarily always good either. Can I get on a hobby horse for a second just to illustrate this? Some of you are not going to like this. It's okay. Um, you know, when you're having a family talk, the crazy uncle gets to talk about, you know, his hobby horses, and you're like, oh, gosh, pour me another drink, right? Let's, let's, let, me, let me just hobby horse for just a second, okay? This, this is why our culture is so infatuated right now with personality inventories. Personality inventories, by the way, are a fantastic tool for your workplace, for your church, for your spiritual gifts. For, like, they're a fantastic tool. But there has become like a cult-like following for a lot of them. And here's the promise underneath them. They promise to help you discover the real authentic you. And when you do, then, only then, but then you can truly start living. Truly. Uh, Strengths Finder, uh, Disc, Enneagram. What are some of the other ones? You know, like I have people all the time, people in the church world especially love the Enneagram because it has a spiritual bent to it. So I'll get it every year. People are like, Tyler, when are you going to do? I probably would have done this a long time ago if people wouldn't ask, which is because they ask, I keep them waiting. Like, Tyler, when are you going to do a series? We're going to do a series on the Enneagram. And I'm like, when we get to the verses in the Bible about the Enneagram. You know, like, but no. Uh, now, I'm not a personality inventory hater. They have been such a valuable tool for me and my own self discovery and for the team here at this church, uh, they, they really have. You should use them. But this is what I found. I have found that self-discovery is good in so much it is to the end of sanctification, service, mission, sharing the gospel. And that's not what I see usually when it comes to the way our culture uses these. Lots of people do personality inventories as some sort of like psychological selfie. Tee hee hee, look at me. Look at how me I am. Now buffer your world around who I am. And by the way, I'm never gonna change because this is what the personality test said about me. 
So I can promise you this. I know what our culture says, but the problem right now is not that we think too little about ourselves, y'all. The problem is that we think too little about God. We're too infatuated with self-discovery and not infatuated enough with bearing witness. I don't need the strengths finder to tell you today, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, this is what you're wired for. You will receive power when the Spirit comes and you will be my, what? Let's, let's say it again. Witnesses, witnesses everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, uh, we ended last week with, uh, uh, with, with Matthew's. Well, what's, okay, what's the very end of Matthew? Quiz, pop quiz, what are the last few verses of Matthew called? What do we call them? The Great Commission. We ended last week with Matthew's Great Commission. Uh, go make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the triune name of God, teach them everything Jesus commanded. And, and certainly it is a great commission. Uh, but okay, can I do another hobby horse? Can I do another one? Let's just do one more. This is, can I be theologically petty for a second? Okay, some of you are like, what are you even, t- what conversation are you having? I mean, we don't have these conversations. <laughs> these are conversations that people in, in seminary world have, okay? I just want to be theologically petty for a second, right? What, something that's always bothered me about Matthew 28 is that it's called the Great Commission. Because the is the definite article. And the definite article implies that there are no other commissions quite as great as the Great Commission. The Ohio State University, you know what I'm talking about? You know how they do that? The Great Commission. Now, last time I checked, there are other Great Commissions, like, I don't know, the one in Acts chapter 1. And I would suggest to you, according to the cues of the text, that the Acts 1 Commission may even be more important than the Matthew 28 one. Now, I'm not gonna die on this hill because the discipleship bros will come after me. The mission statement for all of their churches is make disciples who make disciples. I get it, right? But let me just remind you, let me just remind you, okay, which one is the last commission? Which one? Hey, when is, okay. Again, some of you are like, what, are, what conversation are you having? Some of you, though, are with me, okay? Uh, when, when did Jesus give the Great Commission um, in Matthew 28, or where? Where would be a better? Where does Jesus give the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Where? It's in the text, verse 16. Where? Any guesses? On a mountain in, in, in Galilee. Okay, in Galilee. Next question. Where does Jesus give the, the, the commission in Acts 1 here? The Mount of Olives, right? Which is, which is in Bethany, right on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. Two different places. In fact, for those of you who don't know, there's about 60 to 80 miles in between these two. Now, uh, in which great commission does the text tell us that Jesus ascended? Which one? Acts 1. We just read it. Acts 1. Now, last time I checked, I don't think he ascended twice. I don't think he ascended in Acts 1 and was like, well, got to do the other great commission. And then then came back and was like in Matthew 28. Which means that his last words are which ones? They're Acts chapter 1. And last connotates importance. So if you were to force me to choose, if you were to force me, and I'm not going to die on this hill, but if you were to force me to choose, I might even say that the Acts 1 commission is as or perhaps more important than the Matthew 28 one because they're Jesus' last words words. Let's just leave it at this though. We at least have two great commissions. And let's not forget the Acts 1 one. It has so many spiritual riches, right? 
receive power from the Holy Spirit, be my witnesses, and do it everywhere. Those are three powerful commandments. We should build a theology of mission around that too, shouldn't we? You know, I like the word witness a lot. You know why I like witness so much? Uh, For two reasons. One, it implies resistance. The word witness actually implies that there will be resistance and persecution. The Greek word for witness is, is martis, means one who affirms or testifies to Jesus in word, life, and death, according to the scriptures. Uh, this word and six related terms are used 39 times throughout Acts. It is a theme. It's used often in legal texts, but if you look at how the, the word is developed through the canon of scripture, it eventually comes uh, to, uh, to represent those who witness at the cost of their own life. Martis, martis, do you hear it in the word? This is why we've got our English word martyr. Because 11 of the 12 original disciples were martyrs, they were martyrs for the faith. So I like the word witness. There's no bait and switch here. Pretty clear from the beginning, you're going to face resistance if you bear witness. Now, here's why else I like the word. I like it because it focuses, it focuses on effort, even more so than results. It focuses on the process. It reminds us that we don't save anyone, but we bear witness to everyone. That's our, Jesus is the only savior, right? So we, I ain't gotta save anyone, but I do have to bear witness to everyone. Something that helps me uh, wrap my mind around this is the Ingle scale of evangelism. I probably show this to our church every year, at least. Uh, this is my own adaptation of it, but it's built on the Matthew 28, Acts 1 commissions for us to make disciples and bear witness to people. It shows us the process that you take people through in order for them to become a full court, you know, stewarding, reproducing, spiritually growing Christian. Starts off, people are closed off to God, then over time they become aware of Jesus, have a positive attitude, eventually they repent and they're baptized, then we move them into spiritual growth and multiplication. See how this works? And here's what I like about this so much. It reminds us that every single one of these steps are necessary. Sometimes we think evangelism is just getting people across the salvation line, right? It's not, it is that, but it's more than that. Like you can't get to step eight if you don't do step one and two first. So these steps are important. We should not minimize those. It also reminds us that after we get across the salvation line, that's not the finish line, that's actually the starting line for your faith because there's much more in front of you. Are you following me? Now, here's one of my problems. Uh, I grew up in a, in a larger sort of evangelical mega church moment. Uh, many of you may have have seen this church culture too and grew up in it, um, that I fo- think focused disproportionately on this part of the scale. Taking people who already had like a positive attitude or a need for Jesus and getting them across the finish line. There's nothing wrong with that. It's an important part of the scale, but we focused disproportionately on it. We didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the people who were really lost. We saw them as adversaries and just pounded on the atheists all the time. And we didn't have robust discipleship programs to create disciples who make disciples or people who can go bear witness to the ends of the earth. We just focused on this. And here was the result of it. We grew really, really big churches because we baptized a lot of people in those really big baptism days. And we posted those pictures on Instagram. And wow, look at those numbers, right? 
But what ended up happening is we just, we just cycled a, a bunch of people through this part of the scale. So, okay, here's what happens. Somebody goes through baptism, they get baptized, right? And, and, then, and then if there's no discipleship process to follow up after that, they can maybe live off the energy of their baptism for a year or two, but eventually faith starts to get stale. You lose sight of the eternal and you start focusing on the here and now too much. You come across some hard times in life and before you know it, you sort of fade back down the scale and then something happens in your life where you're like, well, I actually do need Jesus. So you go to another church because you had left the previous church and it'd be awkward at that point to go back. And then that other church does the same thing. They preach the salvation gospel. They, like you, you get baptized, right? And we just cycle people through over and over and over and over again. That's why so many people have been baptized multiple times. This has been our church experience. Again, I'm not against this part of the scale. I just want a church that goes after the whole thing. Now, let me get really, really personal here. Okay, I'm gonna clear the screen there because here's my theory. I do think we have a hole. This is what, let me talk about our weakness for a second. This is our weakness, my opinion. I do think we have a hole when it comes to the scale, y'all. When it comes to our kids, for the record, I think we do a great job all the way through. We're doing a great job. And a large part of that is the effort that our kids are putting forward. Praise God. But when it comes to our uh, adults, our hole is, it's actually here. The thing that I just praised the church for doing for the last, I don't know, 50 years, I don't know if we're doing all that well right now. We're doing an excellent job at the bottom of the scale. I can promise you that. That's what our, all of our Love the Ville activity, there are a few churches that open people up to the goodness and the compassion and the mercy and love of God, quite like the Northeast Christian Church, because we're the Love the Ville Church. Everybody knows that. And we're increasingly doing better and better and better at raising people up and mentoring them and unleashing them with a, with a, uh, you know, a, a ministry plan to go out and be a reproducing, multiplying, you know, unleashing the love disciple. We're doing much better at that. But I'll tell you what, we don't have nearly as many people coming through the baptistry as we once did. We got more people coming through the mentorship program than the baptistry. So I'm not gonna say that this is non-existent here. It's, it exists, it happens some. It should just happen more because it's the heart of evangelism, y'all. Taking people who are open to God and positive about him and bringing him into the family of God, that's where we get to party. Now, what's interesting is if you were to ask me in 2012 when I came to this church, I would have said we were the exact opposite. I would have said we're good at this and not good at that and that. And that's what we need to work on. It's crazy how the culture flips in just 10 years. Now, you know how I think we flipped, how the whole thing flipped? Again, my opinion, but you know how I think it happened? Tell me if you resonate with this at all. Um, I think that over the last 10 years or so, Uh, the cultural acceptability of Christianity in Louisville has changed a lot. It's part of a larger shift that's happening in the United States. More and more, I have found that Christians who are committed to Orthodox faith are like on the wrong side of history. And I'm feeling it more and more here in our city. And as cultural pressure and cultural scorn increases... I believe that many of us have just allowed us to sh- allowed it to shame us out of the conversation. It's shamed us into sort of half-hearted commitment to the mission of Jesus. 
That's why some of us love being a part of Love the Ville Church, right? Because we can quietly write our check, go to a blitz day every once in a while, post it on Instagram, and feel like we're witnessing without ever actually talking to anyone about Jesus. Mm. Somehow we get on this slippery slope of shame. And we've slid from bold to cautious. You, you remember how bold you were when you found Jesus? You were excited, you were on fire, you had all this energy, and now look at us. Right? It's sort of quiet faith. Now I think the way we slide from bold to cautious happens in five steps. At the risk of logical fallacies, I will call it the slippery slope of shame. Step one. Uh, first, we're shamed into wondering if evangelism is necessary. This is where it starts. This is where the seed of doubt gets planted. It starts when you meet non-Christian people who are pretty happy. Like that, that Muslim, Muslim family moves in next door uh, in your neighborhood, and they're great. They're just great. They're great neighbors. Their kids are great. They worry about normal things like, you know, the traffic on Westport Road and where you get the best produce at. You know, like it's just, they're great. And they wave every time you pass their front door, and you're like, they're great. Then you meet like a, a couple people at work and they're super kind and compassionate. They're doing all right. They're not Christian, but they're like given to charity and their Friday nights are lit. Look at their Instagram. And they take really super cool vacations and you're like, that's great. They're, like, they're, they're, they're doing fine, right? And it can be so confusing to us as Christians because those are the non-Christians. They're supposed to be unhappy. Their lives are supposed to be empty and full of wickedness. So a seed of doubt gets planted, right? Do I have anything to offer them? That leads to slippery step number two. We're shamed into believing that evangelism is closed-minded. It starts with us saying, well, is it necessary? And then it's like, well, maybe it's just closed-minded. You know, like maybe, maybe Jesus isn't the only way. Maybe there are lots of paths. Maybe I should be more tolerant and let people do what they wanna do. When you start thinking that, by the way, you are immediately jumping into the, good, like the jet stream of our culture because that is what's being sown into the minds and hearts of our young people by our culture today. This whole idea that, uh, you know, you do you, follow your heart, make your own truth. Who you feel is who you are. And in an environment like that, a culture like that, the exclusivity of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus, the hard sell. Actually, you don't have control of your money. You don't have control of your body or your time or your sexuality or your feelings or your Fridays. Jesus says, that's all mine. Take up your cross and die to yourself. Doesn't sound like good news in our culture because it's so countercultural. So then that leads to slippery step number three. You doing all right? Are we good? You with me? Okay, this leads to slippery step number three. Uh, we're shamed into believing evangelism might actually be immoral, right? It might actually be just wrong. Don't believe me? Okay, so uh, this is a Barna study uh, that was published in 2019 on how uh, different generations think about sharing their faith. And what I'd really like for you to do is I'd like for you to focus on the, the millennials, all right? These are, I'm a millennial, these are my people, because this is just, but this is just interesting to me. This is, by the way, the largest demographic group um, in our church, the millennials and their kids. So, so just, I, I just want you to watch this, okay? All the generations are important. Go Google it later, you can see lots of cool stuff. But just, just watch this. Um, so according to this, this study, they found that millennials think that, that witnessing is a part of their faith just as much as, as anyone else. In fact, 96% believe that, that we should witness if we're Christian, Christians. Uh, next, uh, 94%, which is about as much as everybody else, 94% of millennials think 
that, uh, that the best thing you could do for someone is to, to introduce them uh, to Jesus. Um, get 86%, a little bit less, but still 86% feel uh, like they're ready to answer the hard questions about faith. So they feel equipped. And again, 73%, which is more than anyone else, actually feel gifted at sharing their faith with other people. That's great. Now I want you to look at this fifth row here though, because this is where it gets really, really confusing. 47% of millennials though, at the same time, feel that it's wrong to share their beliefs with someone of a different background in hopes that they will one day convert to Christianity. Now, is that perplexing to you? It's perplexing. I'm like, what? How does that make sense? Okay, you believe that witnessing is important. You know that it's a part of your faith system. You feel equipped to, to share and, and you, know, uh, you, you feel like you can answer the hard questions, okay? And yet you think it's wrong to share? What? It's like, it's insane, right? How, how does somebody hold these two together? Well, I'll tell you how, it's one of two ways. Either one, it's because you're crazy and you need to repent of your incoherent beliefs. Or two, it's because we know what the Bible says about witnessing, we just disagree with it which is what non-Christians do, by the way. They know what the Bible says, they just don't actually believe that it is true, best, or good. That leads to slippery step number four. We are shamed then into thinking that Christianity is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. All of a sudden, rather than seeing the beauty of Jesus, we start seeing the ugliness of the church. It's confirmation bias at its worst, by the way, because the church statistically is the number one donator of time and money when it comes to human rights, justice, helping the poor, marginalized, the facts are in on the church in America, but you don't see that. You can't see that. All you see are all the scandals from the mega leaders and the powerful Christian institutions. All you see are the corrupt political alliances. You see Christians arguing over stupid stuff on social media. You see the anti-intellectualism where it's like conspiracy theory and you know, push down your doubts and you know, demonize science and all that. Oh, this is a big one for me. You also see the really, really bad art that Christians produce the embarrassing art. I remember when the Chosen series came out and uh, they were like, hey, we're gonna make a, a TV series on the life of Jesus. I was like, oh God, please no. I was immediately cynical because I know how Christian art usually is. Now, fortunately, the series has been great. You should absolutely go watch it. I've, it's emotionally compelling. It's brought me to tears multiple times. I love the, even the artistic liberties that it takes with some of the characters because it makes you realize that these are real people and it was produced well. It was. But that's the exception, not the norm, right? So you see all this ugliness out there and it begins to mound up and weigh down until you're just embarrassed. I heard Christian political thinker Justin Gibney describe it like this once. He said, Christians collectively have developed a low self-esteem. That's where we're at. So when you are embarrassed and feeling pretty bad about your, your Christian self, one of two things, this is, this is where we end, either, either here or, or the next one. First, one of two responses. First, we end up shamed into deconstructing our faith altogether. And you probably know at least one person who has. I've seen this happen so many times, by the way. This is where people are so ashamed of Christianity that they either leave it altogether or erase parts of it that they think are embarrassing. Oh, and believe this, when someone deconstructs, they always, always stop evangelizing. In fact, evangelism turns into just criticizing the church. That's the new evangelism, right? They just point to all the ugliness in the church and they try to get other Christians 
Literally, they've tried to de-evangelize other Christians to deconstruct or deconvert from the church. Only problem is they're not actually leading them into anything healthier. I'm past my time, but can I just tell, can I give you a personal story here? So um, the majority of the deconstruction stories I've seen, this is just me personally here, okay? The majority of the ones that I've seen are, are people who uh, actually grow up in right-leaning evangelical churches that taught that Republican and Christianity are synonymous. Those are the stories that I see in my friend group. And what happens is as these people grew up, they start seeing the holes in this because Jesus isn't right, he's not left either, he's not even moderate, he's transcendent, he transcends the phrase, right? So they start seeing some of the, some of the holes in this mindset and they start pointing it out to their mom and dad or their spiritual mothers and fathers at church and what they meet is stubbornness and resistance. So instead of critically evaluating, bringing sobriety into this evaluation, figuring out well, what's of God and what isn't of God, what you see is a lot of these young people just swing all the way over to the other side of the spectrum, deconstruct into a Christianity that looks no different than the progressive left. One of my friends who did this, I asked him, I said, can you tell me as a follower of Jesus, do you disagree with the Democrats on anything? Because it feels like maybe like one or two things I could think of, you know, It'll be interesting, by the way, to see how their children respond to them. How's that gonna work? I imagine it may be how the children of this generation responded to their parents. They'll grow up, they'll study the Bible, they'll see the holes in their parents' lopsided, left-leaning version of Christianity, and they'll leave. I just hope that they don't leave altogether, but I also hope they don't swing all the way back over to an unhealthy version on the right. Now, for what it's worth, a lot of these people who have deconstructed, they're not at Northeast anymore. They've left. Those of us who are still here, I don't think that's our problem. Most of us haven't deconstructed. Most of us haven't compromised our faith. Most of us have rather just embraced a quiet faith, a quiet version of our faith. Maybe. Have we embraced it? Here we go. This is the other response to embarrassment. We are shamed into a quiet Christianity. And I have found that quiet Christianity eventually becomes private Christianity and private Christianity stops evangelizing. It's all about having my quiet time and like going to church. On, there's nothing wrong with that, but just have my quiet time, go to church, write my check. Compromised or quiet, that's where we are. And it's all such a major overreaction to the shame of our culture. So that is why today I would like to offer an invitation out of the shame, the fear, and the boredom. And it is found in, guess who, Jesus. No wonder, by the way, so many of us are bored, unsatisfied, or disappointed with faith and life right now. We've been shamed out of actually living it. We've been shamed into a lukewarm, quiet, gutless, godless version of it. We've lost the plot line. There's a tyrant out there and he's taking our family and friends as slaves and destroying them. And his agenda is to enslave them for a million lifetimes, if you'll let him. And we're just gonna let him? Because we're scared of HR? Because we don't want somebody to tweet something mean about us? Look, if Axe is right, if Axe is right, then this is the diagram. Right? Like this, this is the map of human history, right? This is the eternal drama that we are living in right now. 
And according to Jesus, seeking the approval of others or the pleasures of this world is not what he's prescribed to take us here. We have to witness. When did we start believing, by the way, that the approval of others and the pleasures of this world have more to offer us than Jesus? Like, what if this, by the way, is the adventure we were created for? What if this is what matters in the end? Like, if you believe that, how could you ever let it become an afterthought? Are you bored? Are you unsatisfied? Perhaps this is the key to snapping out of it. Wear what you believe on your sleeve. Make disciples, bear witness, follow Jesus. See if it changes you, bet it will. See, what's interesting is that you actually won't let yourself live a bored life for that long. The fight or flight mechanism inside of you kicks in. Either your sadness will take over and it'll make you feel suicidal or your survival instinct will take over and it'll force you to find adventure. You'll take all that hunger for adventure and purpose and meaning and you'll project it onto something. Again, when we lower the stakes of the eternal, we'll raise the stakes of the here and now. But let me save you some heartache. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. This is the distress cry of our culture right now. Um, Christianity is the worst. It's like so embarrassing. But also, there has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to life than all the money and sex, all the activism and politics, all the experiences and vacations, all the self-help books and hot yoga, because I done tried them all, right? I've gone vegan and done the bourbon tours and meditation breathing and a third marriage and Netflix and what you had, all of it. And it ain't working. Somebody please help. To which Jesus is like, I can help. In fact, I can give you power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you will go and be my witnesses. Look, it's not that we've tried Christianity and it's failed, y'all. It's that we've never really tried Christianity at all, eh? So look, we're gonna go into a prayer time right now. We're gonna take about the next 15 minutes. We're gonna sing a couple of songs. We're gonna see a, see a baptism. We're gonna take communion together. But I wanna challenge you during this prayer time to reflect on this. What's next for you? Today, who is the Holy Spirit inviting you to bear witness to? Home, workplace, city, and church. Start with the home. Do you have kids in the home, a spouse, a brother, or a sister that you need to begin pushing Jesus into their life, starting those conversations? What about the workplace? Is there somebody who's going through a hard time or a pivotal circumstance that you can show God's love to and start speaking his truth into? What about the city? Where is God calling you to bear witness? The little league, the gym, the PTO, I don't know where. And then pray for this church. Pray that God would spark a revival and that we would be a full-scale church, if you know what I mean. And pray that those of us in here who haven't accepted the invitation of Jesus would today. You know, today was supposed to be about Acts. And it was, sort of. Let me end with this. You know how Acts ends? You know how Acts ends? It's kind of weird. It just cuts off, just stops. At Acts, it goes to Acts 28, Paul's in chains. He's about to evangelize Nero, maybe, right? And it just cuts, it's like four or five chapters were just cut off somewhere. But you know what I believe? I think by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that happened on purpose because the story of the church is still unfinished today. You and I are Acts 29. So look, the only reason you're here today is because someone loved you enough and was courageous enough to share Jesus with you. I wanna ask you to consider today, who's God calling you to share Jesus with? If you would, let's stand. Let's sing, let's pray. And if you feel compelled, come join me up front as we pray for those in our lives.